one of the <clears throat> results of the pandemic in our home was that, um, especially early on in the pandemic, we um, watched, binged watched some Netflix, and I know some of you all probably did the same, and uh, in doing that we found some odd or interesting shows, and one of the shows that we watched as a family was a, was a show about uh, survival. It wasn't Survivor, uh, the, the TV show you're probably familiar with. This is like the real deal. This was that they took like 10 or 15 people and they plopped them out in the middle of nowhere, whether it was Alaska or in a rainforest somewhere. They were all separated, they were isolated, um, and they had to depend upon their skills to actually survive. So if they were going to eat, they either had to trap or hunt or fish or gather food. Um, if they were going to not get wet or not get too cold, they had to build themselves a, 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 a fortress, a, a little hut in which they uh, lived in. And they were out there for a while. And the result, the winner of the game was the last one standing. The last one, uh, so the last one to quit, the last one to give in, uh, was the one who won the game. And I think the prize was like a million dollars. Now, what was interesting, as you could imagine, is over time of being out there in the wilderness, uh, it was almost as if they kind of went a little crazy. There were things, you know, they would talk and these were survivalists and they were tough and they would talk about things like you got to, you know, you can't allow yourself to get wet in the Alaska winters when it's cold. So you got to stay away from this certain type of ice. And by the end, you'd see they just like step in the ice or they would have made a fishing pole out of something and they, as they were going along, they would be using it as a walking stick and it would snap. Uh, or they would let food spoil that they normally wouldn't let spoil. It was almost as if, it wasn't as if, it, the reality was, is that being out in the wilderness and being malnourished and fighting the elements, uh, that things were going on inside of them and their body that made them almost kind of really lose track of the reality of their situation. Now at the end of this, towards the end, what would happen is that they were so malnourished and in bad shape that every week they would send a boat or a helicopter with a medical staff and they would do med checks. Uh, and if their, if, their, uh, if their BMI got below a certain point, they would pull them. If there were certain indicators uh, that if they, were, uh, if they were bad, they would pull them and they would have to resign the game and remember as they were going through this they didn't know if there were 10 other contestants left or if there were two other contestants left they were just fighting for survival now one of the things that was interesting one of the things that was interesting is the way that they won the game or knew that they were were let to know that they won the game would be when this boat or helicopter would come, they would bring a family member. Uh, if they were married, they would bring a spouse. And so when the spouse got out of the helicopter or got off the boat, the person would know, oh, I've made it and I have won. What was interesting was how many times in this game the person was sitting there contemplating, I'm sure, whether or not they wanted to keep going, contemplating whether or not they were going to be have the body mass to do this, and the spouse would get off the boat and there was no reaction. That they were kind of so 
out of touch with reality that it took him a while to be jarred that, oh, this is my spouse. Oh, this means that I've won. This is a different day. You know, we're not going through the humdrum of the regular day. Think about the insanity of something. Think about if if someone was in this game, they had been out there for weeks, months, torture, hardships, longing for the day when they could go back home and sit on their couch and sleep in a bed and be with their spouse and their loved ones. So think about the loved one gets off the boat and meets them and says, you know, you won the prize, you won a million dollars. And then think about if that person would have said, hey, can you hold on for a second? I've got to go check my traps. Or, hey, do you want to go with me to try to hunt some food? I think I saw a rabbit track somewhere. Or, or will you help me fix this, this, this thatch roof? It's leaking a little bit. We would know if that happened in this game that that person had gone completely insane, completely out of touch with reality. The inability to celebrate, to take it in that they had won this game, that they had gotten this money and their life had been changed. Totally out of touch with reality. This morning, as we look at our text, this is actually a good example, a good thing to think about when we look at the Pharisees and the disciples of John Because what we see in this text this morning is that these Pharisees and and the disciples of John were not in touch with the reality of the situation that they were in. They didn't understand what was going on. They were missing it. Last week, last week as we looked earlier in this passage in Mark chapter 2, we saw as, as Jesus called Levi, and as they were in and they were partying and they were celebrating and Levi had created this party that the Pharisees were on the outside looking in and they didn't understand what was going on. They were missing the party. And this week we see that the celebration is continuing. And at the same time, this celebration is continuing. There are people that are outside looking in that have no idea what's going on. They don't know the day They don't know what time it is. Look at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the Pharisees were right. There was a time for fasting. There was a time for fasting. The Bible clearly points to a time for fasting. There was a time for everything. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for celebration, a time for mourning, a time for fasting, a time for feasting. When we look at the whole Old Testament, we see that God uh, ordains and gives times to His people where they are to work. There's times to rest. There's times to gather, there's times to sleep, there's times to celebrate, and there are times to fast. On this Survivor show, there was a time to fish, there was a time to hunt, there was a time to gather, there was a time to write letters 
to loved ones. But Jesus, Jesus, as he has asked this question, Jesus is telling them that they do not understand what time it is. They do not understand what's going on in front of them. And he is pointing them to, if they understood what was going on in front of them, they wouldn't be asking this question about fasting. They would be joining in the celebration with him. One of the things that we know about the Pharisees in this day and age in the New Testament is that the Pharisees fasted two times a week. This had become part of their normal routine, part of their normal ritual. But it wasn't always the case. Fasting, uh, the Lord called His people to fast in the book of Leviticus uh, of on the Day of Atonement, the day, uh, the day of the year in which uh, Israel would all gather together and the priest would go in and cleanse himself uh, and make sacrifices for the people. And this would be the day that they set aside to celebrate the atoning work of God, that God um, would release them from their sins. After the exile, God's people added another fast in a longing and anticipation for the Messiah to come. But where we get in our point in our text is that this fast had taken on a much different meaning. We know, if you have read the New Testament, you know that when Jesus confronts the Pharisees and when He confronts their fasting or when we hear Him talk about this, He's saying, don't do this like the Pharisees. That oftentimes they would put on certain clothes and put on dust on their head to, to let everybody know, look how pious I am. I am fasting. God's displeasure with fasting and the type of fasting that was taking place didn't start here with Jesus, but went back uh, quite a few hundred years. In the book of Isaiah, God, through his prophet, talks about how worthless the fasting that was going on was and talks about that the fasting is worthless, that you are fasting, but yet, yet when I see you and I see what you're doing, you are quarreling with one another. You are arguing. There's strife among you. When you fast, you are not drawing near to me, says the Lord. You, if you were, then you would be um, looking out and loving your brothers and sisters. You would be not only loving your brothers and sisters, you would be loving others. You would be doing justice. You would be walking humbly. And that's not what's going on. And so God looks and says, I don't know what this fast thing is you're doing. In the book of Zechariah, God again speaks to the prophet and he asks this question of the people. Are you really fasting for me? Because your actions don't prove that. The point is that fasting wasn't a ritual to kind of earn God's favor, but that fasting was meant to, to draw God's people to himself. And that the result of that fast would be that they would be near to God and they would see what God was up to and they would join Him in what He was doing. And so here's the reality of the situation. As these Pharisees and as John's disciples come to Jesus and they are fasting, Jesus knows they have missed the point of fasting because they don't know who He is. 
if they were drawing near to the Lord, if they were drawing near to God, if their fasting was to seek God and His wisdom and to seek His face, then as they approached Jesus, they would know who He was. And instead, they're drawing near to Him as a religious leader and asking Him, why don't your disciples fast? This is speculation, but I think that John's disciples were probably there fasting because their, must, their leader was gone. And they were mourning that he was in prison and they didn't know what was going to happen to him. And so they were fasting. And they also were missing the point because John had plainly told them, there is one coming after me. And he was right in front of them. Jesus was telling them, essentially, what we see, what we will see, is that Jesus is telling them, you don't understand what time it is. You do not understand the day you're living in. If you did, you would break this fast and celebrate with us. Your Redeemer is here. It's a new day. You don't have to live out in the wilderness anymore. Come on in. Come on in and be with me. What was the last really good wedding you went to? I guess it was last spring, Casey and I went to a wedding of a, um, a, a girl. I, I, call, I still think of her as in middle school. Um, she grew up at Crossroads and she got married and um, it, was, it was a great wedding. It was a great celebration. I mean, they had a band. I bet there were like 15 players in this band. Uh, really good food and uh, just a, a good time of celebration of being with friends. And the most important thing to me, what is it? The cake. You know, I, I so look forward to the cake. That's the big part of the celebration for me. You know, I hate it even when they ask you, do you want the groom cake or the bridal cake? Because the answer is yes. Bring it on. And, and my wife always has to tell me, like, you can't be the first one in line for cake. And I'm like, I can. Like, I'm there while they're putting that thing in each other's face. I'm like, give me the next piece. Recently, Flannery was a part of a, her first wedding at her school. Um, in order to illustrate that Q and U always go together in, the, in, in things, they have a QU wedding, and so she was a maiden of honor, and I was joking with her that since I am on the board that I can come and eat cake at that wedding too if I want to. She didn't like that, and I did not show up for the cake there. In the New Testament, weddings were a huge deal. Weddings were often a seven-day celebration where everybody who was going to this wedding all came together and they celebrated and they partied and they celebrated this whole idea of this man and this woman being united together and becoming one flesh and this new household being formed. I have heard stories in India that this same sort of thing continues to this day. That weddings are a really big deal, especially in the upper caste systems and that no amount of money is spared. In fact, I have heard people who... Uh, have attended weddings in India and they were guests that everything was paid for. And in fact, when they got there, they had a different outfit that they were given to wear each day. That, that weddings are a huge, 
Huge, huge, big deal. How crazy would it be? Let's say it's your son, your daughter, somebody really close to you, and you're really looking forward to celebrating this wedding. And you go, and you go to the party, and they come out with the cake, and you say, oh, nope, that's not keto-friendly, is it? Or if you're checking your Weight Watchers points before you eat that meal. It's crazy. It's time to set that stuff aside and to celebrate. You're supposed to enjoy. And that this idea of a wedding is the metaphor that Jesus uses here to talk to these Pharisees and John's disciples. Look at verse 19. And He said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants and the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? It's unthinkable. They can't fast. This is a wedding. The bridegroom is here. You can't fast. You can't not eat. You can't not celebrate. So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can not fast. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a secret. And I'm giving this away in front of my family. So now they're going to poke fun at me and this sort of thing. But I, I will I will tell you, I. I am a sucker for like the news stories where the soldier who's on deployment, he comes home and he surprises his family. He shows up at the school. I'm kind of a sucker for those type of stories and the tears do kind of well up and I kind of shift myself on the couch so the kids can't see, you know, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing. So what I want you to think about this morning an example that, that, that got brought to my mind as I'm thinking about Jesus and Jesus using this metaphor as a wedding is that picture this. Picture that there is a young lady and that she is engaged to a man that is on deployment. And that these two are just longing for one another and they've been separated for an extended amount of time. And they can't wait for that day that they are together and that they can begin their life together. And let's say that he surprises her. She doesn't know he's coming home from deployment and he just shows up at her place of employment. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the tears? Could you imagine what this day would look like? Of them finally being back together and celebrating and looking forward to the time that they're going to spend together? How crazy would it be if in this moment that this man is like, oh, sweetheart, I, I'm so glad that we're here. I just want to celebrate with you. I, I have got us reservations at the nicest restaurant. Let's go. How crazy would it be if she said, oh, wait a minute. There's this show I really need to watch. Or, or what crazier still, think about this. This is more the point. I just want to spend this afternoon together. Let's go to this meal. Let's go and do this. I've arranged for us to be able to do this and spend this time together. And she were to say, uh, listen, I can. But listen, remember, at seven o'clock, we need to FaceTime each other. Or, you know, at eight o'clock every evening, I write you this email. And so. I, this is the point that Jesus is making. The bridegroom is here. There's no need for the fasting. There's no need for the standing outside. The time that is here, it's a time for celebration. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been longing for. 
understand the reality of the time. Now, there is something deeper here. There's something deeper here. And this is the the first time that Mark has done this. And I do not think that the people hearing Jesus saying this, uh, there are things in this text that they would not have known, but I think that Mark um, expects for us to pick up on. And there are little things that he drops into the text that are just big ideas. And, And I'll tell you what I think is one of them is this. In the Old Testament... This imagery of a bridegroom is used fairly often. In fact, we find it in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea that that this idea of this imagery of a bridegroom. And you know that no time in the Old Testament is the bridegroom the Messiah. Every time in the Old Testament when it's speaking of the bridegroom, it's speaking of God. Of God being with His people. And I think what Mark is pointing us towards, and Mark wants us to understand and to see what's going on here, is this whole idea of Emmanuel. That in Christ, what we see is God dwelling with His people. Again, calling our hearts and drawing us up to this idea that this is the greatest thing that had ever taken place. That God became flesh and dwelt among us. And there is no time for fasting. This is a time for celebration. Now, many of you here um, are married. And so you'll understand what I'm saying. And for those of you who are not here, I'm gonna, who are not married, who are not here. Some of you are not here. But those of you who are here or watching live who are not married, I'm going I'm to teach you a little bit of a lesson. But... When you get married, everything changes. So, you know, Elijah, before I was married, I didn't have a minivan. I had a cooler car. But when I got married, things kind of changed. The minivan makes sense. Before I was married, I didn't even put sheets on my bed. I slept in a sleeping bag for years. Last night, before I went to bed, I was putting the sheets on on the bed. And my wife was happy. She's trained me well. When you get married, everything changes. Your identity changes. No longer is it Lewis and Casey, it's the Belvas. And it's kind of weird because the Belvas were Bill and Sharon, my parents. But everything changes. We become one. And, and, And the way that we do things changes. The way I spend my money changes. The way uh, the, the occupation that I look at changes. Everything about us changes when we're married. And there are two people in particular in this church, and they're not here. I'm hoping they're watching online because they need this rebuke. Do you know there are some among us men who have even had manicures and pedicures? That's right. And you know one of them really well. Everything changes. I don't think these men would have gotten a manicure or pedicure if they weren't married. And they keep telling me how great it is. Everything changes when you're married. Everything changes when you are linked together. And the two become one flesh. And Jesus is pointing us here in verse 20 for us to understand 
verses 20 through 22, that when we are married to Him, when we are part of His people, that everything changes. And, and you may look first and say, what in the world are you talking about? Give me a second so that you can see it. Jesus then says, He says, for as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Now what Jesus is not saying is that they have the bridegroom, He's taken away, and you go back to the old way. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. You don't go back to the old. You don't join the old and the new. You can't do that. If you do that, then the garment becomes useless. And then he gives us another parable. Nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. The reason? The wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost. And the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. What Jesus is saying is that when you are united with Christ, even when the bridegroom goes away, Behold, all things are new. You are married. And in this particular instance, he is talking about fasting. And he is saying when the bridegroom goes away, verse 20, you will fast. It's a new fast and we'll, we'll get there. Now, there are some commentators that I think are wrong. I know it's bold of me to say that, that they say that when Jesus is saying, that there's a day he'll be taken from you, that this is when he's arrested until he um, comes back to life. And I don't think that's the case for several reasons, uh, but the two main ones is this. In Matthew chapter 25, this imagery of the bridegroom, Jesus uses it again. And Jesus is talking about, this is the parable of the ten virgins, and they're talking about the bridegroom coming. And it's obvious, it's evident in that text, it's talking about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And so Jesus calls Himself the bridegroom there, the bridegroom coming back, returning, uh, being the, the second coming. And also in Matthew in chapter, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is talking about kingdom living. He's talking about how His people live. And we have all these statements of, uh, you have heard it said, and we see Jesus' authority, like you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, even if a man thinks in his, in his heart, and remember in this, it says, he says as well, in Matthew six sixteen, Jesus is talking about kingdom living, and he says, when you fast, here's how you are to do it. And so I think fasting is a part of, uh, of our life. And so I think that when Jesus is saying this, when Jesus is saying the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, he is talking to us. He is talking to those of us, those here those, the original recipients of this gospel, and to us who are living in the days after the resurrection of Christ. He is saying that there is a day when I am not going to be physically with you. And if you think about, as we have shared, as we are going through this letter, that the original recipients of this letter we're going through persecution and hard times. And I'm sure in their hearts there was a, 
a longing. I'm sure in their hearts there was frustration. They were going through hardships. And Jesus is saying here, there is a time when I am going away and when I am no longer with you physically, that is the day in which you will fast. And what about us? I mean, don't we feel this as well? This past year, if it's not done anything to us, I, I think at least it should have done is stirred our hearts and long for the day when things like what we have walked through will no longer be a part of our reality. When we are joined with our Savior forever in a new heavens and a new earth where there's no COVID, there's no anything else that we have been facing. And what Jesus is telling us is in this day, in our day, fasting is appropriate. But we don't fast like we used to fast. And I think one of the, one of the reasons for that is crystal clear, and I think we often miss it when we look at this text. Let's see if you have been paying attention. I won't call anybody out. Earlier in the sermon, when I talked about in the Old Testament, God ordaining a fast, what feast, what day was the fast around? Day of Atonement. Think about this. The Day of Atonement was the day in the priest would come and he would bring two lambs. You, you know this. We've talked about this. One lamb would be slaughtered for the sins of the people. The other lamb would, would be brought in and the priest would lay his hands on the lamb and symbolizing putting the sins of the people on the lamb and that lamb would be the scapegoat. It would be let go. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus comes, there is no need for the Day of Atonement. There is no need for the old fast because Christ has taken care of that. Our reality is not one that we're looking forward to the day where God will make a way. We are looking back and saying, thanks be to God. He made a way. And we celebrate that. And not only did He do that, but He ushered in the new covenant and we receive His Spirit. We are indwelled by His Spirit and we have His Word and we have so much to be thankful for. So when we look at this, when we look at this idea of fasting and we look at this text, one of the things that we have to understand is we don't fast in the old way. And there are a lot of things we don't do in the old way, but I think in particular in our text, it's talking about fasting. And so what is the new way in which we fast? And I want to talk first about an attitude that I think that we are supposed to have. And if you are reading along with us in our Bible reading plan, we have been in 2 Corinthians, and I just want to read through some verses that I think highlight what it means to be a believer in this day that Christ is talking about. What, it, what our inner lives look like. In chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we received mercy. We do not lose heart. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet your inner man is being renewed day by day. We know that the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us His Spirit as a pledge. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died, and He died for all, so that we who live may no longer live for themselves, but for Him. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Do you see in these texts in 2 Corinthians this mixture of longing and wishing and wanting and rejoicing that this is the way that we as Christians should be living in this day and age. And so as we fast, what we're doing is we're not fasting to earn God's favor. We're not fasting to manipulate God in some way. Fasting is not a way to to coerce God into some magical things happening. When we fast, when we take that time... Fasting is always connected with praying. And I I think the reason is, I know the reason is, is because when we fast, it's all about focusing and communing with God. It's all about being thankful for what He has done. It is all about demonstrating our need for Him, showing our dependency is Him, showing that He is better to us than anything. He is better than food. He is better than life. And we take these times and we take these seasons and we do without not to earn His favor but to demonstrate our longing for Him. And then and then we always break The fast. Because we have things to celebrate. I think one of the clearest pictures of this, and I don't remember if this was last year and I should have squared this away before I put it in my sermon. But there was a time that we called our our body corporately to a fast over uh, Holy Week. And so we think fasted maybe Friday and Saturday And then we broke fast together on Easter morning. And this is just a wonderful picture of what a New Testament fast looks like. This longing, this waiting, this expectation, and then this joyous, this joyous outpouring of emotion. I want to ask you, what reality are you living in this morning? Does your life look more like the life of the Pharisees? You're not inside. You're not celebrating. You're outside. Asking questions. Maybe chastising. Maybe you're outside trying to earn your way in. 
Maybe as you're reading the Bible, instead of looking here and seeing the relationship and that God wants us to commune with Him and the relationship that we're supposed to have with Jesus, that you have turned that into some kind of old sacrificial system which is not going to get you anywhere. Are you living in the reality that Christ has come? He's lived. He's died. And He's called you to be in fellowship with Him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am just so overwhelmed and amazed that You would come and dwell with us. That You would come to call us Your sons and Your daughters. God, help us to be a people who don't put our heads down and mourn, but who turn that mourning into longing and that longing into celebration. Help us to be a people who know how to do that well. Help us to be a people who live in the reality of what you have done and what you're going to do. And all this is only possible through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.